Welcome to Sense and Sensibility, the Inflation Guy podcast. I am Michael Ashton. I am the Inflation Guy. I am your host. This is episode 96, Money Illusion, what it is and why it matters. And today on the podcast, I'm going to talk about something that sounds obscure, but it's actually really important, and that is money illusion. It turns out that money illusion is a crucially important variable when we try to figure out how the real economy resp responds to policy and how we as economic actors respond to, to real-world stimuli. Stay tuned. Uh, but first, a word from our sponsor. This episode of Sense and Sensibility is sponsored by Simplify ETFs, a fast-growing manager of alternative ETFs solving today's most pressing portfolio challenges. Not only do they have sophisticated diversifying strategies like a managed futures ETF or yield curve plays like TUA, they also have the number one best-performing intermediate core bond fund from, from 2023 in AGGH and an enhanced income ETF, ticker HIGH, that was in the top 2% of its category. Check out their website, simplify.us, and you can find their entire lineup of ETFs at simplify.us slash ETFs. Of course, we always thank Simplify for their long-running support of this here podcast. This podcast is also supported by Enduring Investments. Higher and, un higher and unstable inflation has dramatic implications for portfolio asset returns and correlations. Current portfolio construction may do well when inflation hovers near 1.5%, but inflation at 3% or above is a different investment regime. Now, you probably have an idea of who you call when you need plumbing or electrical work or landscaping. These are experts you've cultivated over time and you trust. Who do you go to for, invest for inflation expertise? Now, you can figure out a bad plumber because the pipes still leak when he leaves. Can you afford to have a leak in your financials because you use the wrong inflation expert? We are true inflation experts, inflation or investment management for institutions and individuals, and consulting for industrials, insurance companies, and OCIOs. Visit us at EnduringInvestments.com. And now for today's trivia, in what U.S. city does there stand a full-sized replica of the Parthenon? In what U.S. city does there stand a full-sized replica of the Parthenon? You'd think you'd know that, wouldn't you? If you're, if you're an American, you would think something that significant is something you'd know. Well, we'll see. Anyway, before we get uh, started uh, on the money illusion topic, fourth quarter GDP came out today, and we now know that velocity, money velocity, rose at a 5.3% annualized rate. At that rate, velocity will have returned to where it was in the fourth quarter of 2019, by the time we get to the end of the first quarter of 2025, five quarters from, from now. Remember all those buffoons who said velocity was permanently impaired and we'd be in deflation forever? Well, we still have a ways to go. But velocity is up 19% from the lows. The four-quarter change of 8.9% in velocity is, is, is only not a record because of the prior three quarters, <laughs> which were all a little bit faster than that. The two-year change in velocity is... 16.3%, and that is a record. The, uh, the spring, I've, I've, I've related this a lot of times, the velocity is a spring, it's a capacitor, and it continues to rebound. Now let's talk about money illusion. Money is 
several things, right? It's a store of value and medium of exchange. But for, today, for today's discussion, the most important thing is that it is a unit of account. It's how, we, it's how we count. It's how we compare the value that the market places on different things. If a pound of ground beef costs $5 and a pound of tofu costs $2.50, then in principle that means that we'd be indifferent to trade two pounds of tofu to get a pound of ground beef, at least dollars-wise. I would vastly prefer to have a pound of ground beef, but that's just me. Okay, but that's what, that's what the unit of account means. Money is just a way of measuring. It's a way of keeping score. But you don't really care, or at least you shouldn't care, about the amount of money you have. It should be the amount of stuff you have control over, right, rather than the amount of money you have. You know, you can go to Zimbabwe and have a whole lot of dollars. They just don't buy anything. Uh, so it's the amount of stuff you have control over via that money, uh, which always makes me think of of a very famous line uh, from the movie The Jerk. And I don't believe anybody has ever said it more clearly than Bernadette Peters in that movie. I don't care about losing all the money. It's losing all the stuff. Losing all the stuff is, in fact, what it is that we should care about not necessarily losing all the money. Money illusion describes the failure to think in these terms. If you increase your wages 5%, but inflation increases all prices 5%, then you're no better off, right? But if you think you're better off, even though we just said you're not, then that means you've fallen victim to money illusion. You saw a 5% increase in your wages. You said, I'm doing great. And maybe you didn't realize that prices had gone up. So that's called money illusion. Is money illusion a real thing? Does it actually happen? You can imagine it happening. Well, there's a fair amount of evidence, both ac academic and anecdotal, that indicates money illusion is a real thing. Uh, Shafir, Diamond, and Tversky, Tversky of the uh, Tversky and Kahneman behavioral economics fame, showed in 1997 that people's preferences in a particular case depends on whether the problem is phrased in real terms or in nominal terms. And it turns out that it's, it's easy to get somebody to take an option that is riskier or worse in real space if you phrase the problem in nominal terms. For example, experiments have shown that people react very negatively when they are asked to take a 2% pay cut when inflation is at zero. But they don't mind very much at all when wages increase 3%, even if inflation is at 5%. Now, those are the same. In both cases, you've lost 2% of your purchasing power. Inflation was 2% faster than your wages. But in one case, you watched your nominal wage go down. In the other case, you watched your nominal wage go up and you feel better. Um, I actually know somebody who two years ago got what her company called a cost of living increase of 3% to her salary, which was the biggest they'd, they'd done in a, quite some time. At the time, inflation was at 7 And Honestly, you should consider walking, uh, walking out if you're given a 4% pay cut and you're 
boss acts like they're doing you a favor, but but that's that's exactly what they're kind of counting on is, hey, we just gave you a 3% pay increase with and hoping that you don't notice that, in fact, all prices have gone up a lot. This is the, the whole money illusion issue is why people tend to think of inflation-linked bonds as being riskier than nominal bonds because you don't know exactly how many dollars you're going to receive in the future, even if you know in inflation-adjusted terms how many dollars you're going to get. So an inflation bond will make sure that your payments in real terms are protected as well as your principal. If inflation goes up, if the price level goes up, you'll get more dollars to reflect the fact that your dollar buys less. And if the, if the price level goes up, then you'll get more dollars back in principle to reflect that the money that you put in originally is now worth less when you get it back. And so inflation bonds are much less risky to an investor, to a normal investor, uh, than nominal bonds are. In real space, nominal bonds are actually quite risky. But that's not how people think. People think of a 10-year treasury bond as being being very, very secure um, and not risky at all, when in fact it's actually quite risky in real space. But because of this, this effect, this money illusion effect, changing nominal prices on goods and services can actually affect demand, even if the price increase matches the price level. So we saw this in early COVID days, right? Manufacturers were extremely reluctant to change their prices, you know, after the government had just flushed a bunch of cash into the system. But manufacturers did not change their prices right away because they believed, and I was talking to, to several of them at the time, and, and you could talk until you were blue in the face and they wouldn't believe you. You could tell them that, that you know, there's lots more money out there and, and inflation is going up and you need to reflect that in your prices. And they would say, no, no, we know from experience that if we raise prices, all of our business goes away. And, and so they were absolutely convinced that demand would collapse if they raised nominal prices, uh, even though prices in general were rising. And so they were actually lowering their price in real terms. Eventually, most of them, and, and by the way, in the very short term, they were probably right. Eventually, most of them recognized that they could raise prices and did. But even today, many co companies focus on maintaining a certain dollar margin over costs rather than a percentage margin. So if you had a dollar margin of $10 per unit in 2019, and you still have a, two, a $10 margin today, your company is worse off because that margin in 2019 dollars is only worth $8.40 today. Your margins have actually decreased in real terms. Um, but again, that's sort of, you know... Um, that there's there's a ton of debate as to how much money illusion there is. People, though, in some ways, and companies in some ways, certainly behave as if the nominal quantity is what matters. And now, if there is money illusion, it 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 matters, and how much money illusion there is, and how to what extent people, you know, act as if there's money illusion. It really matters. I'll explain this in a second. But um, and and sometimes, like when people buy a nominal bond because they think it's less risky than tips, people are absolutely they behave as if they're absolutely snowed. And occasionally, you'll actually see an error in markets um, that is related to to money illusion. Now, 
and, and you should absolutely jump on this when it happens. It obviously in our country, it hasn't happened all that much in, in quite a while because inflation just hasn't moved very much. But there's a very clear example of this um, in the housing futures market in mid-2022. At the beginning of August of 2022, housing futures, which you can trade in the Chicago Mercantile Exchange and settle to the Case-Shiller 10-city uh, index, housing futures implied at that point that home prices would drop about 10% in nominal terms between mid-2022 and, and seven months later when, when that particular contract went off the board. Okay, 10% drop over seven months, which would be a really significant fall that we've rarely seen. But what was even more amazing was that at the time, the general price level was rising 9% per year. So really, the housing futures market was not pricing in a 10% decline. It was pricing in a a you know 10% decline plus 9% inflation all over seven months. And so it's something like a 26% annualized real decline in prices over over 20 over seven months, which would be pretty amazing because the worst ever year-to-year decline in nominal prices for the Case-Shiller index was 19.4% in 2009 when CPI was itself zero, so the real decline was 19.4. And that is absolutely the great, the biggest, the largest effect ever, the largest collapse in home prices ever in this country. And and in mid-2022, the market was pricing we'd get 26%. We'd collapse at 26% pace. Um, the housing futures market was projecting a housing collapse in nominal terms that was in nominal terms that was only half as bad as in 2008. But in real terms, it was one-third worse than the greatest housing collapse we'd ever seen. Buying at that price was a pretty easy decision because to lose, you'd have to have the housing market collapsing in real terms much worse than the housing crisis part of the, the global financial crisis, which just seemed crazy because at the time there was also a housing shortage. But even forgetting a housing shortage, even if you had the exact same circumstances in 2008, then you were still looking for a worse outcome than in 2008. And, uh, and it would have to be worse than that before you lost money. So there's clearly money illusion because people were not adding that 9%. They weren't recognizing, they were, they were marking down the nominal price of housing, totally forgetting that, they, you know, that in a vacuum, if you don't know anything else about housing, if prices go up 9% in the economy, you expect, you expect housing prices to go up 9%. All else equal, you'd expect everything to go up 9%. Anyway, so... It, it may be easy to fool people at the micro level. You'll occasionally get markets to do stuff like that. But it, it might be that it's easy to fool people at a micro level, but not at the macro level. Okay, so all the things, the things I've just said to you are, are examples of money illusion that are, are happen in real life. And people definitely prefer nominal bonds over, over real bonds, even though they should prefer real bonds as being less risky, all else being equal. Um, the housing futures thing definitely happened. The the fact that people behaved early in the in the COVID crisis is as if they had all this money when in fact, you know, it was it was just paper money. Um, so that's all examples of of money illusion, but operating on a fairly short term basis. It may be that in the longer term, at the macro level, it's harder to actually get that to happen. 
And I, w- I was I thought about this um, this week because you know watching the New Hampshire primary returns. Uh, there was a Fox News voter analysis poll that was taken on the day of the New Hampshire primary. There's a link in the notes. And it asked, among other questions, it asked New Hampshire Republicans about their family's financial situation. Now, keep in mind that median wages have been growing in this country better than 5% per annum for more than two years. Okay, so since January 2022, median wages have gone up at 5% or better year on year ever since then. And they're still rising at better five better than five percent per annum, and yet fifty nine percent of the respondents said that their situation was holding steady. Their financial situation, their family's financial situation. Twenty eight percent said they were falling behind. Their family's financial situation was falling behind despite that large increase in wages. Now you might think that there's some selection bias there because you know this is a you know, Republican voters during a Democratic administration are going to they're going to be in general be more negative, right? Than than the general population, um, you know, they're more likely to express dissatisfaction. But you can find similar results elsewhere. There was an AP poll, I, I did about a three-second search on Google, and there was an AP poll in October, again, there's a link in the show notes, that showed that 26% of U.S. adults are not confident that they can keep up with expenses. 26% there and 28% in the prior poll that I mentioned say that they're falling behind. Those are similar numbers, right? So, you know the, the 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 it's not it's not crazy, and that's with that's with nominal wages going up better than five percent per annum. I think it's because when you ask someone a question phrased in nominal terms, they think in nominal terms, and that's what Tversky et al. showed, right? But when they look at their own finances, they can notice that the expense side is going up faster than the revenue side. And that's hard data to them, and it's sort of hard to hide. You can fool people in the wallet, but not in the checkbook, right? Um, and so my guess is that, practically speaking, money illusion is not as significant as the theorists think it is on anything like a medium or longer-term basis. In the short term, it's absolutely real, but in terms of the practical implications for policy, um, we should probably act as if it isn't all that important in the medium or long term. Well, well, why is it important for policy? Why would it be important if, uh, for policy if money illusion was a really important thing? Recall that the, the, the general equation for money that we mentioned on this podcast all the time is MV equals PQ. Okay, so the MV side says, you know, the amount of money spent, okay, the, the stock of money that's M and the number of times a dollar is spent in a year's velocity. So that's the total amount of money spent is MV. And on the other side of the equation, it's the total amount received by P, by businesses for goods and services. That's the price of the good and service, P, times the real quantity of goods and services, Q. So it's an identity because the amount of money people spend has to equal the amount of money received for stuff that they bought. Okay, so But the policy question is, if MV is tied to PQ, why don't we just print, print a bunch of M? Make the left side of the equation go up you know, really fast, and P and Q will both go up. But if, if we can grow real output, let's suppose we incl- increase the money supply by, by 20%. And let's just suppose that's divided 50-50. Prices go up 10% and real output goes up 10%. We have a massive economic boom, right? So why don't we just – and by the way, this is basically – this is 
is related to the magic money uh, tree or the MMT uh, modern monetary theory um, proposition. If you just print a whole lot, then GP goes up, right? Um, if 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 velocity is random walk, or at least mean reverting, and we spike M, then P and Q should both go up. And the key question is, well, wait a minute. We obviously need to know how much of that is in P and how much of that is Q. We increase money supply 20%. How, if, if it's mostly in prices, um, then that's obviously much worse. If it's mostly in output, that's fantastic, and we should do a lot of it. If, there's a, if there is a lot of money illusion, then when people get lots more money in their pockets, then they spend as if they're a lot wealthier, they buy lots of stuff, and Q, output, jumps while the price level doesn't move very much. If there's no money illusion, none at all, then people understand that when they get 20% more money, that there's not, they're not 20% more well off. Uh, because there's 20% more money out there. So the value of the unit has declined. So if there's no money illusion, uh, prices do all of the adjustment. So money illusion, how much there is, determines to a large extent the division, uh, how, how M gets divided into changes between price and quantity, P and Q. And that's hugely important, right? If you believe you can print your way to prosperity, that by sending large checks to people, you can make the whole country better off, then you have to believe very strongly in money illusion, not just in the short term, but in the long term. And of course, there are multiple horizons. And maybe this is one of the things that, that changes, short-term changes in velocity are measuring, is that in the short term, you know, there is, you know, this effect. And so Q can move in the short term, but in the long term, you know, people understand that they're not really better off, and so everything, uh, so velocity kind of readjusts. Um, even if money illusion operates on a near-term horizon, there is a lot of evidence over that long horizon money illusion doesn't really persist. Over a long horizon, the rise in money divided by equilibrium real growth, okay, I'm just doing some algebra here, M divided by Q, um, approximates the rise in prices pretty well, um, historically. And that means that yeah, people pretty much, you know, a 10% rise in money, once you've adjusted for the fact that output tends to increase over time, means you get about the same kind of move in, in prices. In the COVID crisis, we had this great experimental data in that way. You know, money airdrops caused a huge increase in demand, partly because prices didn't adjust, and shortages. And remember, as I wrote at the time, shortages are unmeasured inflation. But eventually, it was prices that adjusted. Again, maybe that's, that's part of what velocity is doing, is it's proxying for the, the, the evolution of money illusion of being very high in the short run, very low in the long run. Uh, now we're kind of at the point where prices are most of the way where we'd have predicted they'd be in a frictionless economic laboratory world if you had told us how much money they were going to be adding to the system. Not not quite there, but they're but as I said early on, uh, you know, at the beginning of this this uh, podcast, the velocity is um, ha has rebounded most of the way back to where it was prior to collapsing uh, when they started doing all the airdrops. So money illusion matters, uh, I think, 
in the short run, but there's just not enough of it to make MMT work. And that's the long and the short of money illusion. And I hope you understand it better at this point. And uh, so now back to the top and the trivia question, which was, in what U.S. city does there stand a full-size replica of the Parthenon? The answer is Nashville, Tennessee. Which it was built in 1897 for the Centennial Exposition. I really don't understand why. I'm not really sure what about Nashville, Tennessee makes you think of the Parthenon, but now if you're in Nashville, you can go visit the Parthenon. Save yourself a lot of airfare. You have to fly to Greece. That's all for today's podcast. Please like, subscribe, refer others. You can contact me at inflationguy at enduringinvestments.com. Subscribe for free to the blog at inflationguy.blog. You can follow me on Twitter at inflation underscore guy. Visit Enduring Investments if you have an inflation challenge and defend your money. And if inflation is coming for you, remember, you know a guy. <laughs>